Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. In 1966, a very important cultural icon, art critic, a very accomplished writer and philosopher, Susan Sontag, wrote a piece called Against Interpretation. It was a wonderful, um, wonderful bit of art theory. And uh, it also had many ramifications beyond uh, just uh, the way we look at art. Basically what Sontag spoke of is that in life there's a rush to interpretation. When we look at art, it is of course unsettling, especially art that is not propaganda. When we look at uh, complex work that is uh, that doesn't have a sort of meaning or obvious uh, message to it, uh, in other words, when it's challenging art, there's a temptation to, as we stand in front of it, to figure out what it all means, to interpret, to come up with uh, an underlying hidden message. And um, in so doing, when we try to reduce a really complex experience or vent and summarize it with a message, um, she noted that we tend to kill the experience. We tend to kill the power of the the work itself and the way we uh, the way we interact with it. The real feelings, the visceral state of being confronted with a you know a Duchamp or Sai uh, Twomley or whatever I don't know who your favorite artists are you know but you when you see it we have an opportunity either to immediately reduce it to some kind of okay <coughs> Duchamp was simply making a uh, sort of uh, nihilistic statement about the world by engaging in chance operations to create his art or you can actually feel something uh, emotional and not try to reduce it to some kind of uh, explanation. Uh, Sontag wrote, analysis evacuates and destroys. It digs behind the work to find a subtext, which is the true one. Manifest content must be probed and pushed aside to find the true meaning, the latent content. Interpretation indicates a dissatisfaction with the work, i.e. the art, and a wish to replace it with something else. And from the moment I read that, I mean, I first came across this piece uh, oh, about 35 years ago, but it left an immediate, uh, it really sunk in uh, as like a really elegant pointing to something that I think is a, 
that really transcends just art, but the way we approach life itself. Sontag contrasted this kind of hermeneutic or content-based, trying to find and extract some message from experience. She contrasted with formalism, which focused on appreciating how work is put together, constructed, and also how we feel when we encounter it, but doesn't look for some underlying message or content that is not manifest. Um, and formalism tends to uh, really celebrate art for art's sake, art that calls attention to the fact that it's not about any message, or it doesn't have some, some kind of lesson or learning or some kind of idea that it wants to import. It's really about uh, the experience, the beauty of itself. And of course, one could argue that now today with all the, uh, the sort of <clears throat> art that addresses sociocultural events, we need a bit of both. We need you know, to experience something that one conveys something that we can learn from, but also there's still that sense of experiencing something new that we can't reduce to some kind of statement that still echoes in us and doesn't resolve easily and, and transforms us in that way. So uh, rather, this example would be like, you go to a movie I personally want to see this uh, new film, uh, The Lighthouse. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Looks insane. But you know, uh, let's look at a movie that we probably know. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you go to a great film like uh, Apocalypse Now, if you just look at it and just reduce it to a message about. Uh, the dangers of authoritarian figures, what Joseph Conrad originally was addressing, and an anti-war film, and also a film about how insanity can be an escape from impossible situations in life. Well, that would be true. I, I just made that up, by the way. I don't. I, I didn't give that any sustained analysis. But you could say, okay, that that's what the film was about for me, but is that what it was about? Or was it an experience, an overwhelming event that was um, directed in this really visceral way where there was early use of, of handheld cameras and there were these transformative shots that were um, first person type war scenarios where and also just at times the way, um, uh, I can't remember, who's the director again? Coppola, right. Coppola sort of added operatic elements to this very sort of uh, extreme traumatic content. So hopefully when we walk out of that film, we just don't reduce it to some message. Interpretation obviously fits in with our world. We are so overstimulated and bombarded with uh, sensory overload. And we have so many very often ongoing stressors and 
uh, responsibilities that we have cognitive overload, which is this ongoing list of things we have to take care of, uh, uh, issues we have to address, that it tends to diminish our desire to slowly savor and unpack life experiences without this rush to interpret, this rush to judge, this rush to solidify. And we see that though so constantly, um, it's so common when people now uh, go through a disappointing experience in dating or, you know, a work situation. There's this phrase that people use, I feel like the, I think the universe is trying to tell me <laughs> Which is obviously hilarious. The, you know, the idea that, that the universe has suddenly sprouted a consciousness, and that consciousness has stopped being concerned with what? Global annihilation through climate change. And to tell Joe that he really shouldn't date avoided women. You know, I mean. Obviously, the universe is not telling us anything. It's an experience, and frankly, the uh, the inclination to try to unpack experience and find as a way of the belief that processing means we look for a lesson is actually a deep misunderstanding of what processing really is. Processing is allowing the affects and emotions that follow uh, um, uh, really sort of surprising, stunning, or in some way uh, emotionally impactful events and allowing the affects first to arise and be felt. When we feel this need to immediately turn everything into some kind of idea that we can summarize and reduce and just turn it into some lesson, what we're saying is we don't trust our emotional life. We don't, and when we do that, we miss out on all of the lessons and, mess, and uh, the real lessons, which are not ideas that we can repeat verbally, but their energies urging us to take adaptive actions. For instance, if you're in a situation in life where somebody mistreats you, if you cut out the feeling of anger, then you won't, in reducing or repressing the anger by turning it into a lesson, we won't be able to set boundaries and protect ourselves because anger is the natural somatic energy that urges us to push back. If after we lose someone due to separation, death, uh, lack of availability, rejection, if we don't feel sad, then we won't be able to, to have that natural energy create actions or behaviors that are adaptive, like reaching out for help connecting for people, getting vulnerable, and even feeling pain so that we learn not to connect, connect with attachment figures that are, are people who are not available. The only way in my work in counseling that people, for example, learn not to continually chase 
for love and care from people who are intimacy averse or emotionally unavailable is not by telling themselves, oh, I need, next time I really need to find a secure partner. <laughs> that never works. You know, I mean, you can read all your books, on, the books on attachment theory, and some of them are great, but unless we don't cut off the pain associated with chasing after love and not getting it and just feeling that gut wrench and its purity, then the next time we see somebody who's emotionally available and we get excited by them, we'll continue to fall into the same repetition compulsion. Our pain, our emotions are there to create emotional learnings. And sure, sometimes we can have invalid emotional learnings, but very often emotional learnings are, they've been instilled through the course of evolution and um, so whatever energies we feel, I wouldn't even label them emotions, whatever somatic state we feel after an impactful event in our life, uh, after an emotional wound, we need to feel those because that's the only way they leave any real deep, um, they carve out any uh, emotional resonance that can be transformative. Um, we do tend to overestimate the, the belief that lessons or ideas can somehow steer our behaviors. None of our behaviors are actually motivated by cognitive realms of the left hemisphere. It's far too late. The left hemisphere, all the ideas that we learn are so late in the process, the only thing that they can do is inhibit really, really, really bad ideas. But in terms of changing behaviors, thought, cognition, actually takes about half a second to arise, but the emotional impulse that drives behavior takes a tenth of a second. So ideas, lessons, meanings, messages, summaries, do not change our inclinations, our behavioral inclinations. All they do is at best allow us to stall a little bit, but if we don't have any other impulses, we'll still fall back into the same behaviors. Lessons give us the illusion of safety because none of us like to repeat emotionally wounding events of uh, conflicts with people we care about or times we feel uh, betrayed by friends. And we all want there to be something that we can repeat in our head to make us feel safe. But those that languaging, the inner chatter doesn't, as I say, affect behavior, but emotional pain actually does transform. Sometimes for the better, very often for the better, not always, but at least it leads to a change in behavior. The more we get caught up in trying to seek a, a message, we don't do anything. We don't change anything. We stay in the same patterns. Now, none of this is to say that eventually over time we can't discern some kind of a a learning, 
But learning from experience takes a very long time. It takes collaboration with others. It doesn't come from just sitting around thinking. It comes from one allowing all the affects to be processed. It comes from vulnerably disclosing the experience to others, bouncing back and forth, and allowing time to create a sense of clarity that will help in some way in the future. But in the short term, after really uh, powerful events, the most important thing to do is to turn away from the need to figure it out, to come up, you know, you find somebody that we're close to dies or gets a, a terrible diagnosis. The desire to find what it all means is understandable because it replaces the fear of our own uh, lack of guarantees and our own, the, our own vulnerabilities. And it also makes it, the pain feel less present, but it in no way helps us process the experience. <clears throat> the, uh, it's hard to give up this habit because of the two hemispheres of the brain, the right, which is all about experiencing the gestalt of an experience, a visceral state that is emotional and doesn't uh, try to summarize life, it is the unconscious hemisphere. The left, which is the conscious one that we over-rely on in our adult lives, is the one that represents life events in terms of words, concepts, categories, labels. Now, sometimes the left can be very valuable. If you've had a trauma and the trauma is stored entirely in your right brain, it will very often create triggers and you won't be able to uh, essentially timestamp it and let the, the integrate the experience into both hemispheres. So sometimes narrating and summarizing can be of value, but that's always after the initial impact has been felt and has been processed emotionally as with by paying attention. So where are we? I just drive and then I realize I have an outline and try to find where the hell I am. Uh, the Buddha, yes him. Uh, the Buddha was in no way unaware of this. He talked about that there's three kinds of suffering in life. Suffering in the Buddha's language, Pali, was called dukkha. Dukkha means both pain and suffering. And uh, so the first kind of suffering is dukkha dukkha. That sounds kind of repetitive. What it means is painful pain. It essentially means the kind of suffering that happens that just feels that's from a physically wounding event, something that either causes literally pain from tissue damage or wound, but more often it's just the gut pain of a loss of rejection and abandonment that just hits you without any intellectual processing, inevitable pain. 
The second kind of pain is dukkha viparinama, which is the pain that comes from the realization that everything is transitory, fleeting, everything changes, nothing will last, the sense that we can't hold on to anything, that life in its essence is uh, fleeting, without guarantee, always subject to not getting what we want. And that's the second kind. And when people ex explain what the Buddha meant by suffering, they very often stop there, and they don't go to the third form of suffering because they feel people won't get it. But hopefully after tonight's talk, you will get it. The third kind of suffering is the suffering of always needing to turn experience into some kind of explanation or summary or meaning or to add something to it that will help us grasp what it was all about. And that is in many ways the most profound because in that need to constantly represent life as an idea or as some kind of just, you know, something that we can the rush to make sense of it all. What it does is it makes our life empty and hollow and it eviscerates the real, uh, the real experience of being alive and present with something. To, uh, of course, the Buddha with his practice desperately wanted us all to not do what's, what's that process, to give up dukkha sankara, to return to the lived experience, to be with it. Um, at the end, I'll just summarize by saying we need to have a balance. There's no way, given the fact that you all have left hemispheres that are always going to comment, add a voiceover in your mind, that's not going to go away. And for much of life, it can be kind of useful. You know, you take a different train to work and you wind up or to some place you want to be and you wind up a half hour late. And then there's this little voice that goes, well, next time I'm not going to take the F train. That's great, right? That, that lesson, that learning is very appropriate. But the... Uh, the voice that goes, well, that'll teach me for selling myself short and dating a Canadian. <laughs> I love Canadians. <laughs> Doesn't help in any way after we go through a breakup. The story of, you know, That'll teach me for, and then trying to summarize <coughs> a, uh, a real re-triggering of an early trauma or uh, the, the sense of frustration when goals come undone. Uh, what that, that summary doesn't in any way help us process or turn it into anything that 
will uh, help us move forward. Uh, so uh, that's tonight's talk. Just tonight, a more reflection uh, and offering. And then uh, what we're going to do is we're going to put this all in practice in our meditation. And then after that, we'll have time to talk about anything we want. So find a really comfortable seated position. And if you are in pain and need to lean against the wall, by all means do that. You know, you don't have to find a nice space that you feel really comfortable. And uh, so, just take a moment, close your eyes, allow your body to wobble like a top from side to side front and just find what for you feels like a good, comfortable position. You want your practice to be as easy as possible. You want to feel relaxed. And the only effort we're going to put in is we're going to gently lift our chin up like we're looking at a tall building, maybe just an inch, so that we counteract that tendency to allow our heads to slouch in front of our chest. But other than that, it's entirely what feels really comfortable for you. There's no right or wrong. It's just whatever feels sustainable for you. So we'll take our few breaths first just to begin to settle. So as always, take a nice full in-breath through your nose and squinch the muscles in your face really tight, just clenching all the cranial nerves. And then as you breathe out slowly, relax, soften, release. Imagine you could give your forehead a nice massage and release the micro muscles around the eyes. And give them a nice refreshing awareness and urge your eyes to float in the eye sockets without moving, just to take time off from all the darting and jumping about that goes into their daily life where we're constantly relying on our eyes to help guide us through the world. Just asking them to take a well-deserved break and then releasing any tension 
in the cheeks. Try to make your mouth flat and wide. Just a neutral, wide mouth. And then if you're clenching your teeth, try to release them. And uh, let's take another full in-breath and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to reach above your head with them. And then rotate your shoulders back to open up your chest and then drop your shoulders so that your chest is nice and open, engaging the vagal break, which slows down your heart rate. When your vagal tone is high, then your blood pressure goes down and your nervous system switches from stress to homeostasis. So just nice, engaging the that area, opening up the chest, fearless pose. And then for our third in-breath, bloat your belly out like you're breathing in and you're pulling the air in into your belly and your abdomen's expanding and then as you breathe out, just very slowly softening the belly. Belly breathing, abdominal breathing is so useful in developing stress reduction and distress tolerance. So it's worthwhile to note that when the Buddha talked about practice, meditation, he never talked about this need to attain anything, not get somewhere, not achieve something. It was always framed in the language of letting go, unburdening ourselves. The point is to let go of all that we carry with us. Let go of the need to get anywhere. Let go of the need to do anything. Let go of the desire to figure things out and plan the rest of our lives and the need to rehash And worry about the unresolved. Imagine when you dropped your shoulders that you put down two heavy suitcases, one containing all the thoughts about the past, one containing all the worries and concerns about the future, and now all you're left with is you're now on the very first day of a period where you can take time off and you can allow your consciousness to reel it back to your body. Most of the time our consciousness is very often 
chasing after something that a place we need to get to or something that we need to achieve or get done and so we're not fully present we're not aware of the sensations in our body we're not aware of the sensory impressions arriving from the world around us we are just essentially lost in a cloud The point of practice isn't to kill our thoughts, but to upend the prioritization. Now what we're going to do is prioritize what's right here, right now, felt and heard and experienced. And what's going to get the least priority is any thoughts, any memories, any images. Generally, that's it's the opposite. Generally, we care most about our thoughts, our inner dialogue. And we care least about how we feel in our bodies, how the breath is. So this is just a rebalancing. Just try to keep as much of the sensations of your body in your awareness as you can. Imagine your body could be related to as like a, a night sky of stars blinking, the sensations of hot, cold, fluidity, air discomfort and comfort. All the sensations happening now are like blinking stars in a night sky. And your job is just to rejoin, bring your awareness back home to the body that's been sustaining you, the body that's been hosting all your thoughts. Just return to your true home. And if sometimes, just out of habit, we wander away from our home, chasing after a thought that seems very important or worthwhile, there's no thing to feel frustrated about. It's actually an opportunity. Each time we wander away from home is an opportunity to find a new way back. Follow the simplest path back to the feelings, to that which is really happening right here and right now. And when you get back home to your body, just reward yourself with a nice, full breath, just a welcome. Your body always has a welcoming mat for your mind.
So at this point, we are going to use our imaginative capacities. I'd like you to bring to mind an image or something that represents a recent or unresolved emotional event for you. Something that was in some way it feels like it still echoes today. Something that is not fully <clears throat> understood. Which is good. We don't want to rush to understand. That's not helpful. Just bring to mind either an image or something that evokes this event, perhaps a conflict. Perhaps a disappointment, perhaps a separation or a sense of not being seen, perhaps something that was good, a surprising connection, a fortuitous opportunity. Just allow whatever feels right, whatever event feels right, just bring it into your mind and hold it in such a way that you can begin to hopefully evoke some of those pesky feelings. See if you can provoke a felt response. Feelings are somatic, largely. They are felt in the front of the body, where the vagus nerve runs from the face to the throat, the chest, the belly. Sometimes a tightening in the throat or a sense of jumpiness. Maybe a clenching of the abdomen or a hollowness in the chest. Or excitement. And sometimes feelings also have a state of a quality of attention to them. The mind feels really unsettled or heavy and tired or maybe there's just a sense of brain fog, confusion. Let's see if you can recognize 
some nonverbal response to this event that we're bringing to mind, no matter how subtle. Just see if you can find it. Ask for it. We're not running from any of our feelings here. And then, if you can find even the most subtle clenching, tightness, jumpiness, hollowness, trembling, or numbness, then just allow it to be there. Just pay attention to it. Not trying to figure out what anything means. Not trying to uncover or putting aside that desire for everything to have a meaning that we can understand. Being willing to be with life rather than to replace life with a story. Just be with whatever you've recognized and allowed. Lastly, Imagine you could ask this feeling what it needs. What does it want you to know? What does it need? You might not be able to put it into words, that's fine, but just see if you can sense what this feeling what this energy, what this state of being is most seeking. Understanding our emotional needs for safety, for care, for understanding, for support. Our emotional needs are always about how to connect in a way that's safe in the future.
gently let go of any image you've used to connect with our felt experience. And in a moment, you'll hear the sound of the bell. And when that sound is present, just take your time very slowly, open your, your eyes just enough to see the ground in front of you. And the goal then is to integrate sight into awareness in such a way that it shares your attention with the feelings and sensations of your body to live our life mindfully and skillfully we need to not just be aware of everything that's going on around us and our thoughts we need to also be aware of what we feel half of the brain the right hemisphere, that's how it talks to us. That's where all of the most, some of the most important learnings are revealed. 